stay alert. <laughs> Come on. Watch out. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8. You ever felt like you were under attack? You ever felt like either maybe somebody at work or school was just trying to make your life miserable, you know? Or maybe um, you've experienced a string of bad luck that just seems more than coincidental. Uh, maybe you've experienced seasons of crippling anxiety or depression or feelings of isolation. Where you just feel like you're kind of alone, right? You've been there before? Could be a relationship that's turned sour, an injury or an accident or an illness that just doesn't seem to be getting better. Can I ask you a question as we start this morning? Where do you go when life's got you? Where do you, how do you handle when you're set up or you experience a setback? Like where, where does life, where do you go in life like that? Like what's your go-to? A lot of times these are not spiritual attacks, but they can turn spiritual because our pain turns to doubt, right? Our struggle turns to a prayer of God, where are you? Can't you see the injustice that I'm facing? Where is my deliverer that we sing about on Sunday? And there's our enemy waiting. Or it's temptation, right? These are more self-inflicted wounds. These are things that we do that we know we shouldn't, right? Uh, things that, you know, it's, it's kind of like I shouldn't watch that, say that, do that, <laughs> those kinds of things. And yet, when we're, our, when we're in a season of, of, of attack, those temptations seem so strong and hard to resist. So the question as we start this, this morning is, is, is really... What do we do when we feel this kind of attack happening? Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. It's almost like Peter's like, guys, what did you expect, right? Like, why are you surprised? Don't be. And he goes on, he says, instead, he says, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Here's the point. We're in a battle. We are in a battle. Today, we're finishing our series, Make Every Effort. And as I wrap up this series, I wanted to just step back, take that, that 40,000 foot view of the entire thing and really ask one question, right? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? I mean, the entire series is about effort. And, and we're talking about this effort that, that is required in our walk with Jesus, right? And it's not effort alone. Like we've talked about that in, that in the series that God is with us to supply us the energy that we need. Like he hasn't left us alone in this, right? But it's gonna take effort. And why? Why is that? It's because we're in a battle. And the faster we realize that, the quicker we understand that, the more we don't live in the delusion that that isn't true, like the better our chances are gonna be of success. I just wanna survey this really quick. There is so much battle language in the Bible, but in the New Testament specifically, there are so many places, and I'm just gonna hit a couple very quickly that talk about this battle. 
And it might, for some that are maybe newer to church or you haven't read the entire Bible, the New Testament, this might be a little bit of a surprise how much the Bible talks about this battle, right? First, Peter, first Timothy chapter one. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's, let's all say it, battles, right? The next verse, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear for the same people, or I'm sorry, for some people have deliberately violated their consciences, meaning they gave in to those temptations, right? And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. It's a battle, right? At the end of the same book in chapter six, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run, a, run from all these evil things, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Second Timothy chapter, Second Timothy chapter four are probably some of the last words that the apostle Paul ever writes. The last recorded words of Paul. And he's reflecting on his own life. And he says, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. Like that's what you want to say at the end of your life, right? I fought the good fight. I was faithful in this battle. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this word. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And in the very last, very next chapter, he, he says these words, but I'm afraid, he's writing to this church, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure, pure devotion or allegiance to Christ. We're in a battle. And like I said, this is a quick survey. You that have studied the Bible, you know how many places this battle's talked about. The armor of God, right? The weapons that we fight with are not weapons of this world, but mighty weapons of prayer. And on and on we go. So here's my big idea that I just want to, it's a simple truth. It is so important. It has to be at the bedrock of our understanding. And it's just right here. Life's a battle. You either fight or you fall, period. Life's a battle. This isn't the most encouraging sermon you've ever heard. I promise you. I'm sorry. Okay. But I'm going to give you the truth, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I'm not going to say, well, you know, life's like a box of chocolates. Okay. It might be, but here's the truth. The life's a battle, right? Life's a real battle. And there's a real enemy and he's really gunning for you. He's really gunning for your marriage. Guys, he's really gunning for your hope. He's really a thief that's trying to steal your victory. He's really after your future. He's really after your friendships. It's a, ba it's a battle, right? Like, honestly, I, I, I have no other news to share with you. This is the worldview of Jesus. This is Jesus. This is what he believed. This is the way he lived his life. He understood very clearly there was a battle and there was an enemy. And he had come to do some major battle against that enemy. I'm glad he did. Are you too? <laughs> I am. I want to show you this pivotal passage where Jesus really marks the battle. 
And this is some war, guys. Man, if you could have only, if, I don't know what it would have been like to see this physically, but I wonder what it would have been like in the spiritual realm. How many of you guys believe there's a spiritual war happening in, a, in correspondence to our physical war here, right? Like you just wonder, like, what is the spiritual war happening right now? I could preach a whole different sermon if I wanted to right here, but I won't. But I think this is one of those like, whoa, moments, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 16, let's check this out. Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's going to be really important. He asked his disciples a huge question. Who do people say that I, the son of man, is? So he's talking about himself. So essentially he's asking his 12 closest disciples, who am I? Who do you think I am? Who do people say I am? Now, what's really fascinating is the location of where he's at. So I want to kind of do a little rabbit trail, but it's really important. Um, this region of Caesarea Philippi is in the far north of Israel. Many of you guys know that last year I had a chance, me and Michelle, to go to Israel to check out all the sites, our second time over there. And this, on the second trip, we went to this location, which I didn't go to on the first trip. This is close to the border of Syria and Lebanon. You can see Syria, which is not a place that you want to go on your tourist destination location, right? Okay, you can see it. And you're at, you're at the very, very north of the country. In fact, the northern part of the country is crowned by Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the largest mountain in Israel. It has snow on the winter. It's the only place in Israel where there's actually a ski resort. And there is a, it's snow-capped even to this day. And Mount Hermon is the, is the headwaters for the Jordan River, where you know Jesus was baptized and flows into Galilee and then flows down into the Dead Sea. And so you're at that location. In fact, the ancient tribe of Dan, uh, so if you know your Bible, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Dan was the one who controlled that area, that geographic place. So Jesus is in this, the furthest he ever goes in his, in his ministry is, is here. And this is an ancient place of ancient uh, apostasy for Israel, okay? Let me give you the backstory. There was a time right after King David, his son, King Solomon, King Solomon after his reign, the, the kingdom splits into two halves. Uh, uh, kind of a rebellion happens. You have the northern tribes where Dan is, and you have the southern tribes. And the southern tribes are controlled by, uh, by Solomon's son. So this would be David's grandson, and that's Rehoboam. The, old, the upper tribes, the northern tribes, are controlled by this rebellion. And this guy's name is Jeroboam. So there's kind of like similar names. Jeroboam is is worried though, because he just broken the kingdom in half. And he's worried that if some of his people traveled to Jerusalem where the temple of God is to worship, that they would eventually defect. So he struggles with this. And he's thinking, you know, militarily, that's not a good idea if, if your people travel to Jerusalem three times a year for the different festivals. So he comes up with this plan. Here's his plan. I need to have a counterfeit religion set up in the North. So that ra rather than people traveling to the south and maybe seeing the affection for Yahweh and, and, and Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon built there, that they would then go back down and realign themselves with the southern tribes. He's like, let's just do a copy. Watch this. This is in, uh, our text is going to be in 2 Kings, I believe it is, ch verse tw uh, chapter 12. Here's, here's, what, here's what Jeroboam says. These people... Um, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance, that's a really important word, to their Lord King Rehoboam 
of Judah. They will kill me and they will return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Isn't that interesting? He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a long trip. He says, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. That sounds just like the golden calf story in Exodus 32, if you remember your story. He set one up in Bethel and notice this, and the other one he set up in Dan. Verse 30 says, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went up as far as Dan to worship the other. So I told you guys, I traveled there. I traveled to this actual location. Uh, here's a picture of me. Yeah, that was great. Like, I'm here in a selfie. Anyway, this is actually the, this is, this is, I mean, I'm a nerd, right? These are the actual walls of the tribe of Dan. And inside of this, look at the next picture, is the actual foundation, you guys, of this counterfeit temple. This is the actual location where this counterfeit temple was made by King Rehoboam, right? And out front here was where that other golden calf was. This is actually the place. I think it's so cool, man. It's awesome. (laughs) Okay, so, so this is why I'm bringing this up. This is exactly where Jesus is at. He's gonna make his battle line. He's gonna draw a line in the sand. Who am I? Who do, who do people say that I am? And his true identity is gonna be revealed here. And he's doing this on this same place of this ancient apostasy. This ancient apostasy where Israel was tempted to, instead of being allegiant to Yahweh and to Jerusalem, right? right they were now being tempted to follow the golden calf counterfeit up in the north. So let's get back to our text in Matthew. This is, this is what happens next. Well, they replied. So they're answering Jesus' question about what people think about him. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jer- Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Verse 15, it says, then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? I think it's so interesting how many times God asks that specific personal question. What do you think? I was saying this yesterday at a funeral that we had here. I was recounting the story of, 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 of Lazarus is being raised from the dead. And Jesus tells Martha the, the most incredible truth ever uttered. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, yet shall you live. And then he leans in and he asks Martha, what do you think? Do you believe this? God isn't interested in what the crowd thinks. He wants to know what you think. God wants a personal uh, confirmation from your lips that you are confessing him as Lord. What do you think? What do you think? And so Peter, (laughs) I love Peter. He speaks up. Okay, here it is. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. These are the most powerful, this is one of the most powerful proclamations of the identity of Jesus in the entire Bible. Peter gets an A plus on the test, right? He gets the answer perfect. In fact, Jesus says this. He says, look, blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. 
Jesus affirms what Peter says is absolutely correct. He is the son of the living God. The one that took Israel out of Egypt through that slavery period and into the promised land, the living one, that's who Jesus is. He is embodied. He is right there in flesh and blood. And this is all taking place on the ancient apostasy that Israel committed against Yahweh all those centuries earlier. But it even gets better than that. You guys right? This is so cool, right? Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, which is a kind of a synonym for death will not overcome it. So Jesus was, so Peter just affirmed that Jesus was the son of the living God. And then Jesus's response is that the church that's being established will be able to overcome the gates of death. So there's a living and a death kind of contrast here. The church of the living God will defeat the gates of death. Can I get an amen there? That's what he's saying. I've come to defeat death. I'm going to bring life out of death. Life is going to overcome death. For the entire human history, death has been chasing us and destroying us. But Jesus is going to reverse that curse. Come on, somebody. He's going to bring life out of death. That's what he's saying here. But this is so fascinating because this is Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi are the headwaters of the Jordan River. The Jordan River comes out of a giant spring at this location geographically, this, a spring of water shoots out of the ground. In fact, in Jesus's day, there's a, there's a picture I'm going to show you. There was a, a pit, a grotto. And the, and, the, and the people actually believed this was a gate to the underworld, to Hades. At this very location, there's, these, are, these are pictures of, of temples that were constructed, what's left of them. And in this pit, the water would flow and they thought it was flowing from the underworld. They, they worshiped the god Pan, which actually has its origins traced all the way back to Egypt when Israel brought some of those foreign gods with them from Egypt. It also was, be, it also was a site of, of emperor worship. One of the first sites in Jerusalem or in Judea, uh, uh, Israel, of where they worshiped Caesar in, in this location. So here's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look guys, I'm the son of the living God. Peter confesses it. The gates of hell will not overcome the church I'm starting. I'm literally standing near the gate of hell. And I'm saying, this will not have power over my church. We're at war right now, is what he's saying. And I'm declaring war. I'm the true king. And I'm going to declare war on any of the forces of darkness. And the church will be victorious in the end. Amen. That's what he's saying. He's making that, he's drawing that line in the sand. He's like, let's go. All right. And then he says, I'm going to show you my battle plan. But it's not a battle plan any of them expected, nor do we. And here's what it is. Look what he says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples his battle plan. That he must go down into Jerusalem. I added that part. Okay. He must go down to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life, Jesus gives them the entire plan of what's about to happen. He reveals to them for the first time his mission. 
that Jesus was rock solid on. I've come to destroy the works of darkness and I'm going to destroy the works of darkness in the most, in the most clever and unexpected way. I'm going to let the forces of evil draw their best onto me at one location and give me their worst. And I will take in my own body, the sin of the world and defeat evil by allowing evil to come fully on me and then die what looks to be the final breath of my life. But instead of that being the end of my existence, it will open a doorway to new creation because I'm going to come out of death victorious three days later. That's what he's going to do. That's the battle plan. It doesn't look like a great strategy, right? It's like, okay, you're going to go down there and do what now? You're going to go down there and just let them shoot you? I mean, that's what the plan is. Like, you're going to like let them waste all their ammunition on you. Like, is that what you're going to do? Like, that's Peter, right? In fact, that's what Peter says. Look at this at verse 22. Peter took him aside and said, never. No, we got to come up with a different battle plan, right? You going down and being crucified is not a good plan. May this never happen to you. I want you to see the next thing Jesus says. Because Jesus is rock solid on his mission. And he's rock solid on the fact that there's a battle. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the same language, church, that Jesus uses against the devil in the wilderness in the same book, Matthew. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Peter. This is crazy because Jesus sees what looks like his best friend, but instead of the voice of his best friend, he knows it's the voice of the enemy trying to get him off of the mission that he's come to do. Friend, let me tell you something, guys. We need to have a clear filter about what we are here for. We need to be very clearly understood that we are in a battle. And sometimes it might even be my best friend that's trying to keep me from the mission of God's best for my life. And I'm not gonna stand for that. I love you. I, you're my best friend. But listen, you are, you are a stumbling block to me. Guys, let me tell you something. You gotta have a filter. Everyone has a filter. And if you're a follower of Jesus, my faith has to be my filter. Can I get an amen to that? I'm filtering every decision by my faith. My faith is my filter. And this is what I mean. Like as I filter decisions, like should I go there, right? Should I hang out with that person? My faith is my filter. Is that the best decision for me? Is that gonna help my walk with Jesus? Is that gonna help my battle? Or is that gonna hurt my battle? Are you with me? What if every decision we made in life was filtered through this lens? I'm in a war and I'm either going to be helping my battle by making that decision or I'm going to be hurting my battle. Guys, I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I, I get phone calls and it's people that are in the middle of a battle in their marriage or in the middle of a battle in their, with their friendship or I'm working with teenagers and it's the middle of the battle with whatever's going on. And if I could just help them put this filter on, you would know if that's the best friend for you, really. Because does that friend help you follow Jesus? Guys, what if every single friend you picked was a friend that helped you follow Jesus? That was the number one reason. Hey, I want to date that guy. I'm only going to date that person if they help me follow Jesus, right? I'm not even going to say yes unless they're going to help me follow Jesus. My faith has to be my filter. Is your faith your filter? How are you filtering the decisions that you have to make in your life? 
What's filtering your decisions, right? So many times, I'm going to speak to adults in the room. We have a whole bunch of other decisions, right? If I buy this, that's going to cause me to be in a lot of debt, right? Is that really going to help me with my, you know, freedom to really serve Jesus? Or am I going to spin my way? Ooh, now I'm really stepping on some toes here. Spin my way into bondage. Are you with me today, guys? Right? Like, I got to be careful. It has to be my filter, okay? Right? If I, if I decide to go there, I know what that's going to lead to. I need a little wisdom to know that that decision might not help my battle, Right? Or what if I flip it around? And what if you say, you know what? We're all in a battle and I'm going to be your very best battle buddy you ever met. Like I'm going to be encouraging you in the faith. I'm going to be texting you, just encouraging words constantly. What if that was your decision? What if every person that you had in your life, they knew, boy, that guy's got my back. That gal, she has got my back. She's got my six. If you're in the military, right? She's got me. He's got me. My faith is my filter. Look what Jesus said. As we wrap up this sermon, look what he says next. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Then he goes on and he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And he finishes this passage with this word. For the son of man is going to come in his father's glory. I love that confidence. I'm coming. He says, and then he will reward every person according to what they've done. Those who've been faithful in the battle. So I want to go back to where we started this whole sermon. That circling lion. And I did edit that video. I like that video. And I like the part where the lion's licking its lips. Yeah, trying to get some lunch. Look what it says. Stay alert. Watch out. This is old Pastor Peter. Peter, I'm sure he wrestled with the devil for a long time before he wrote these words. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls, looking for someone to devour. So then he says this, stay firm. Stand firm against him. And that was perfectly timed, Tim. Tim stood up at that exact point. I love that. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering. Are we a church that's going to fight? Are we going to fall? That's the only options. A couple weeks ago, there were some things going on in my personal life. And I got up at like 3.30. And I said, it's time to go on a prayer walk. But it wasn't a normal prayer walk. It was a prayer fight. And I knew it. And I fought. I'm not going to let the devil just... I'm going to fight. So when we sing this song today, I sought the Lord and he answered. That's why I trust him. Guys, I want you to be able to say that with confidence. I want some of you guys to start fighting for your marriages and your children and your influence and your futures. 
I want you to stop just letting the devil eat your lunch. I want you to understand that if you believe there's actually a lion that's prowling, you will be a part of the herd. You won't be foolish enough to think you can take him on your own. Like I need a herd. Like I need people, right? I know it's not the flattering thing, but you need to turn to your neighbor and say, will you be a part of my herd, right? Because I've got an enemy who's gonna try to destroy me and I need people who've got my six. I need people who are gonna be on my, on my side that want me to win, some of you, listen, oh, I'm gonna start preaching again. Okay, some of you think that person's your friend, but let me say this, if they don't really want you to win, if they really just look for an opportunity to use you to step, they're not your friend. Like you want people that have got your best interest in their hearts. They want you to win. They're gonna pray for you. That's a friend. Be that kind of friend. Be that kind of friend. Look at this last text and everyone stand with me, please. The writer of Hebrews, he ends his letter. Let us hold unwavering to the hope we profess. I would, I argue that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was experiencing a whole lot of defection. People were just being eaten by the lion. They were leaving, they were being destroyed. And you can see this in the passion of this, 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 these words. For he who promised is faithful. He's, he's calling them back to Jesus. And he says, let us consider how many, or let us consider that we may spur one another on to love and to good deeds. And then he says this, not giving up on meeting together. He's calling them back to the herd. Man, don't let the enemy find the, the stragglers and devour you. As some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Today is our life group kickoff. There are so many opportunities for people to be connected to the herd. Coming to church is great. Worshiping Jesus together is great, but this is not gonna be a herd if you just kind of come and go. Like you need people that know you, that will share the burdens with you, that you trust, and that takes some time. You can't do that for like an hour and 20 minutes on Sunday. You need to be with people. They need to be allowed access in. You need to share your, 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 your prayer requests. You need to have war with your brother and sister where they have your back. <laughs> 